0: Please take out your Bibles, turning them back to John chapter 5 for the last time. Looking at the end of the passage there, technically we only have verses 45 to 47, but we're going to have to back up to verse 39. Uh, This is our sixth and final week on the underrated John chapter 5. We could have given this many more weeks. We have skipped much. This word is just so rich. But this is the perfect way To conclude this chapter, we have been looking for weeks at the words of Jesus. And today, we close with a meditation on the nature of the words of Jesus. John 5 is just this this masterful sermon from Christ. And we opened a month and a half ago looking at the amazing healing that started and set the stage for our story. An invalid for 38 years healed with only a word from Jesus. That's amazing. That's, That's a powerful Word. That is a significant sign. And we're trying to emphasize the significance, the significance of the signs. Right? They're not the point. They point us to the point. And so this amazing thing has happened, and yet John doesn't dwell on it, and therefore we're not dwelling on it. Because the sign, as wonderful as it is, is merely the setting for the words. Even more wonderful as they are. So Jesus heals, yes, but he heals to reveal. He shows, but, but now he speaks. His specific design in doing this sign is for the purpose of confronting the religious leaders and us with a clear and compelling revelation of, of who he is. I am God. I am life. Your relationship with God is dependent upon your response to me. Your, relation, your reception of life is dependent on your reception of me. Again, those are big, significant claims. And as we've been seeing, big, significant claims demand substantial support. And Jesus has been providing that for us, providing the proof by way of witness. We've looked at the witness of John, the witness of the signs, and now we close again by considering the witness of the Word, the witness of the Scriptures, as Jesus says, for it is they that bear witness about me. And so we're back to witness, the witness Witness is a word about something. It is evidence, proof, support for the truth of that something. Witness is a word. And so what do you do with a witness? How do you rightly respond to compelling and conclusive witness? Well, you believe it, right? And this, we know, is what this book is all about. This is John's very purpose in writing to us. Chapter 20, verse 31. This all is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Look over our text there in John chapter 5, starting kind of in verse 38. John is a great writer. He has woven his theme masterfully throughout his work. And it's such a critically important theme, life itself, that he comes back to it again and again and again. And so we're going to come back to this again and again and again. Look at the passage, look at the whole section, all about witness, but then also all about the response to witness, which is belief. Look at verse 38, Jesus has said, you do not believe. Verse 44, he has said, how can you believe? Verse 46, he says, if you believed, you would believe. 47, if you do not believe, how will you believe? I say, bevy of believes. I like that, couldn't, couldn't resist. But it raises the question that we, should, that we considered last week. If this witness is so compelling, if Christ is so clearly good and glorious, why do so few believe? Why are some of you not believing? We know ultimately it's because of sin. John 3.19, the light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light. Remember, sin is the inward turn. It's the selfward turn. It's to be ultimately concerned with self or in the terms of last week, sin is a concern with cool. And we we defined that in terms of verse 44. Seeking glory, praise, honor, affirmation, acceptance from men rather than from God. Cool is not just a concern of the hipsters, but of all of us. We are all of us seeking affirmation and acceptance. Jesus' point is that you cannot ultimately seek it both from man and from God. And it is this self-concern, this concern for the glory that comes from man, this desire to be affirmed and accepted in the eyes of man that blocks belief in the clear and compelling claims of Christ. And so the question is, how can this sin, how can this self-concern, how can this seeking of self through the praise of men be overcome, overruled, and overturned? Well, Christ gives us the answer here. It's only by the word. That's what we're tackling this week. Verse 39, he talks about the scriptures. Last week, we looked kind of at the heart there, 40 through 44. The sinful self's belief blocking, seeking glory from man. And in verse 46, Jesus comes back to the scriptures. So the outside, the scriptures, are the solution to the inside. The sinful self. The seeking of glory of man, we seek the glory of God in the scriptures. Because they are the star witness. The scripture is the clearest, most compelling witness to Christ. The scriptures are the means through which the spirit works to open, blind, self-obsessed, cool, concerned eyes. And so Christ masterfully closes this brilliant sermon containing his majestic and confrontational claims about himself by pointing to the witness of the life-giving word. The scriptures bear witness about me. And so we're talking about the Word this morning. And I have been desperate to convince you of how much you need the Word and to compel you to take up and to read the Word. I'm not very sure how successful I've been. and That actually weighs heavily on me. Jesus says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right? We eat food to live. We don't eat food. We die. That's the metaphor Jesus chooses to convey, convey to us the importance of, of the word. Therefore, we eat the word to live spiritually. We don't eat the word. We die. And have you been starving yourself? Are you hungry and you don't even know it? Are you struggling, sad, fearful, doubting, discouraged? What do you think about the word? And how are you using that word? Are you using that word? Because it is the thing that bears witness to the Christ in whom we find life and joy and peace. So, Let's just for the next few minutes consider that life-giving, Christ-revealing, presence-mediating, joy-producing word together. Four points. First, big idea, um, put in the imperative on purpose, search the Scriptures for the Son. In light of what the Scripture is, here's how we should respond to it. Search the Scriptures. How? How? Well, first, how we don't. We're going to see what they do and how not to do it. Number two, how not to search the scriptures for the sun. Point three, how to search the scriptures for the sun. And then four, and finally, uh, the response, believe in the son of the scriptures and live. So John chapter five, all about the word. My hope in prayer is that God would just simply compel you and convince you of the goodness and beauty of his word. That's all I want to accomplish this morning. So let's read the text and then ask God to accomplish that because I cannot accomplish it. John chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to pick back up in verse 39. Verse 39 and read to the end of the chapter. But we're going to focus on verse 39 and verse 46. John 5 starting in verse 39. Pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you today. Jesus says, "You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness" on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If you would, bow with me, and let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given to us the very words of eternal life. Father, we thank you that we have just heard you speak, because you speak and you work through your word. Father, help us to see the great privilege that we now have uh, to hear from that word. Father, help me to see the great privilege and responsibility that I have to minister and to deliver that word. Father, I am not up to the task. Um, I desperately need your help, and we desperately need your spirit um, to compel us, um, to convince us of the beauty of the Christ that is found in the beautiful scriptures um, that reveal him to us. Father, I pray that you would use this time to encourage us, to challenge us where we need to be challenged, to correct us where we need to be corrected. Most importantly, Father, uh, to give us a great love for Christ and for the Word of Christ, and to make us uh, doers and not only hearers of this wonderful Word. Father, I can't do this. Um, You can. So please help us now in this time. Help us to focus. Help me to be clear. Father, please work by your Spirit. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, point number one, search the Scriptures for the Son. We've got to start with some grammar. I heard someone say this week, quote Luther, as saying grammar was a means of grace. I was not able to track down that quote. If you can find it, tell me where he said that. But I love the idea, so I'm going to to use it. Pastors are notorious for quoting things that no one actually ever said, so I always try to look them up. Um, But I love the idea, grammar as a means of grace. Look at verse 39. Here's where our big idea is coming from. Jesus says to the religious authorities, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. If you are following along in the King James, you may have been a little bit confused. Verse 39 in the King James reads this, search the scriptures. You you hear the difference? ESV, you search the scriptures, you do this thing. Uh, King James, search the scriptures, do this thing. The ESV translates the verb as an indicative, a statement of fact. This is what they do. They search the scriptures. The King James translates this verb as an imperative, a command. Search the scriptures. Do this thing. Which is correct? Technically, either could be. Without getting into all the details and the Greek verb endings, the word could be translated as either an indicative or an imperative. And when that's the case... Uh, That means that context has to determine which way we interpret the verb. And basically everyone recognizes that context demands this verb be the indicative. Even the New King James, which is just taking the same King James and updating the language, goes with, you search the scriptures. So Jesus is not commanding them to search the scriptures here. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that he would say, search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. No, he's not commending their practice. He's correcting their practice. He's saying, this is the thing that you have done and are doing. Let me redirect and correct that thing. But do note that our first point is in the imperative. I've worded it specifically as a command. I'm working on making my points more pointed. Our goal here is not only to observe and interpret the text, but to apply the text to you and to me. And I think that points worded in the second person are a little more pointed and more helpful. You do this thing. In light of what the scripture is and does, in light of its bearing witness to the Son, you must respond rightly to it by searching the scriptures for the Son, by reading them in light of Him. But let's start first with the what. Let's start with the indicative. Search the scriptures for the Son because it is they that bear witness about me. Scriptures bear witness to the Son. That's the big idea. They point to him. He is the point of them. In the Greek there, uh, where you read scriptures in the English, it's the word graphe, which just comes from the word "grapho," which means to write. So literally, the text reads, you search the writings. We translate this as the scriptures because, you know, 1600 years ago when jerome translated into latin the vulgate he translated this as the Scripturas, which is just latin for writings so we took that and we stuck with the name scriptures it just literally means writings scripture then is the inspired sacred writing that is the foundation of our faith We read in chapter 1, paragraph 1 of the 1689, to preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world, the Lord put this revelation completely in writing. That's scripture. God's revelation in writing. And pause there for a second, right? We're way too familiar with this, Don't pass over that too quickly. This was a profound realization for me years ago. God, all-knowing and all-wise. God, always and ever-present. The great and glorious God who is life. The God whom knowing is life. And in whose presence there is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. This perfect God, this perfect mind, in his perfect wisdom, has given us a book. That's huge. He has given us written words. If if that's not reason enough, right there, why you should be reading books, I don't know what it is. You should be reading books. Um, You have time to read books. In your use of media, I know that you have time to read books. Try it. God has given us a book. That's, That's huge. God has chosen the one way to reveal himself. The way the perfect God of the universe chose to speak is a book. God works through his word. That's the big main idea. When we first meet God in the words of Genesis, in the beginning, after the fact that he is, the first thing we learn about this God is that he speaks. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said. God is, God speaks, and when God speaks, material reality leaps into existence. Psalm 33, 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. What a word that must be then. God's speaking is our existing. Which means that literally, our life, our physical life, is entirely dependent on his word. And so much more than that. In Genesis 12, the Lord said to Abram. In Genesis 15, it says, the word of the Lord came to Abram. And so what we start to see is that not only is it God's word that creates reality, or physical reality, but it's it's God's word that creates his people. our, Our spiritual reality, our spiritual life. We're not only dependent upon his word for physical life, but spiritual life. This is the big idea of the beautiful vision in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 comes right after the promise of the new covenant, the promise of life. Ezekiel finds himself in a valley, a valley full of dry bones. It's kind of terrifying. And God asks Ezekiel, can these bones live? This whole thing's about life. And then God says to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them. Oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And then there's, there's this sound. Bones are coming together, sinews, flesh, skin. It's a beautiful picture constructed in words. And then they breathe and they lived. All by the word of God. There's the word and then there's life. How do we live spiritually? How are we saved? James chapter 1, verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of God of truth receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls the word saves your souls first peter 1 23, you have been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of god you know romans ten seventeen. faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of christ Eternal, spiritual life entirely by and based upon the word of God. No word, no life. Or you should consider the gospel itself. What does the word mean? It means good news. What is news? It's an announcement. It's a report. In other words, it's words. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Therefore, words are the power of God for salvation. Church, words are everything. Look back at John chapter 5. Let's get to the text. Read this in light of all of that. A little just brief intro. Let's get us in the the mindset. We're talking about witness. We saw in verse 32. Another bears witness about me, Jesus says. And I know that his testimony is true. Truth is life, so pay attention to this witness then. We saw who this witness was in verse 37. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. But don't miss what Jesus says next. Don't miss how he implies that the Father bears witness. He says, you haven't seen the Father, you haven't heard the Father. Verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you. 38 is explaining what comes before it. That then means, I think, that it is the word by which we see God and hear God. We see God by the word of God. We hear God by the word of God. Words are life. Words are everything in the biblical worldview. Christianity is a logo-centric worldview, a word-centered faith. And that's because reality, according to Genesis, is logo-centric. And that's because God is logo-centric. In the beginning, God says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Everything is created and sustained by the word. Words are the very definition and foundation and structure and framework that are at the heart of reality. I've, I've used the illustration, before. There's an old PBS show called Word World. I think it didn't make it. I think it wasn't very good. Um, but if you watch it, it's, it's kind of brilliant. All the characters and creatures are literally made out of the word. Right? You see the dog and it's consisting of the letters dog impressively fashioned into a cartoony, cute looking little dog. Right? So it's dog literally made up of the word dog. That's pretty accurate to reality. That, that, that's a good example in illustration. God speaks. We live in a worded world. He creates it, and he sustains it, and he does it all by his word. And so here we're focusing on the fact that the word, words are the Witness. And again, you know, we're starting this week because I'm just trying to emphasize and get us in the framework of how important the word is. We, if we kept going through like a biblical theology of the word, we'd see that glory is mediated by words. Presence is mediated by words. Grace is mediated by words. Life is mediated by words. Joy is mediated by words. Communion, fellowship, relationship, mediated by words. If that's correct, I had to pull out all the stuff when we walked through that. But if that's correct, you remove the word... The communion's gone, the joy is gone, the life is gone, the grace is gone, the presence is gone, the glory is gone. Because all of those things are mediated through God's word. Knowing God, seeing God, experiencing God, loving God, all happens through the reading, through the reading of the word of God. Surely, church, this is hugely significant. God has given to us a book. He has given to us words. And he has said, these are the words of eternal life. That's that's the graphing the writings, the scripture. And so, what Jesus says, if all that is true, what Jesus says in verse 39 is huge. He says, all of that, all the words that we have, the the written revelation, the whole of the Hebrew scriptures, that's all he's talking about at that point, as well as the New Testament scriptures to come, he says, all of those words and all that they do, all ultimately about me. All 1,189 chapters, all 31,102 verses, he says, all that bears witness about me. And what is the primary purpose of Scripture? What is the chief end of Scripture? The chief end of Scripture is to point to Christ and to glorify Christ so that we can enjoy him forever. This is what Jesus tells us here. It is they that bear witness about me. And so again, the application, the first point, just simply and logically follows. If all that's true, well, search the Scriptures for the (laughs) Son, Use the scriptures in accordance with their design. Jesus says that they are all about him. So use them only as if they were all about him. Use them as if their chief purpose was to glorify God by revealing the Son of God and the life that is to be found in him. So that's a basic idea, but the question then is, well, what does that look like? How do you search the scriptures for the Son? Well, let's start first with how you don't. Point number two, how not to do this, look back again at verse thirty-nine. Indicative: Jesus is stating what they have been doing. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Stop. First off, you see the verb "have" there. It's not. It doesn't actually in the Greek say "you have eternal life." It's not a second person singular or plural. It's technically an infinitive. Right? Infinitive is "to." The word "to." T O plus The verb literally the the verse says something like you search the scriptures because you think to have eternal life in them. You're not saying that you think that you have it, but you think to have it in the scriptures. And let's be clear here. Jesus is not saying that they're wrong for thinking that. Jesus is not correcting their valuing of the word and their thinking that life is found in the word. Some of the stuff I read this week seems to imply that the Jews were mistaken in that. No, not at all. They were correct. We've just seen what the Word is and does. We've just seen that life is dependent upon the Word. The Jews were correct to place the Word at the very center of their life. And here's a way in which they entirely outstrip us by placing the Word at the very center of life. Psalm 1. A couple examples. A life-changing psalm for me. Provocative. Parents, consider how you're educating your children in light of Psalm chapter 1. Blessing, which is life, found not in, around, with... Influenced by the wicked sinners and scoffers. But blessed is the one whose delight is in the law or the word of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So Old Testament scriptures, blessing found in the word. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, at the very center of the Bible. 2,445 words in one translation all about the word. Using eight different Hebrew words for the word word. Verse 25, give me life according to your word. Verse 50, your promise gives me life. 93, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. Verse 156, give me life according to your rules. That's so foreign. Like rules, I don't know. Christianity is it's not about rules, it's about relationship. That's dumb. Um, it's, it's both. But rules are good. Give me life according to your rules, David says. And on and on and on we could go. You think that in the scriptures, there is eternal life, Jesus says. And you're correct. You're right. Up until that point. Because he keeps going. Here's where they went wrong. Yes, it is in the scriptures that there is found eternal life. Because, and, and, it is they, those scriptures, that bear witness about me. And so here's how not to search the scriptures. Here's how to use the Scriptures wrongly. We use it wrongly when we use it in any way that is out of line with its ultimate end and purpose. We fail to search the Scriptures correctly when we fail to search them for the Son. We misuse the Scriptures when we do not use it to find, learn, love, and live for the Christ of the Scriptures. We misuse the Scriptures, keep in mind last week, keep in mind the middle of our Scripture sandwich, verses 41 through 44, we use them wrongly when we use the scriptures ultimately to seek and serve the self rather than to seek and serve Christ. When we seek and serve glory for self and for man instead of glory for and from God. This can be very subtle. You're thinking, there's no way I, I, don't, I don't do that. It's very easy to seek self and to seek your own will through the word of God, actually, and be using the word of God as a means ultimately only to, to seek and serve itself this is more subtle we are p- more prone to misuse the scriptures than we would like to think um, I found this helpful uh, this is from this is from Dane Ortland's new book Deeper this is called Deeper it's real change for real sinners this is actually an excellent book um, it's about sanctification um, and I would highly recommend it it's a short easy read you should read it um, but I'm stealing what I'm about to say from him and I'm telling you that I'm stealing this from him uh, very loudly and openly because there's a bit of a plague of plag- plagiarism in preaching right now Uh, the very president of the Southern Baptist Convention got caught plagiarizing sermons. Stealing the sermons, he got caught. And he still has a job. It's insane. Stealing and claiming someone's work as your own is immediate disqualification from pastoral ministry. This is the job. Do your job. Uh, Stealing sermons and passing it off as your own should mean no more ministry. Okay, so what I'm doing, I'm stealing here, and I'm telling you that I'm stealing here. I'm not passing it off as my own. I did not come up with this. But Ortland, on page 149 of his book, he lists nine common but wrong ways to read the Bible. And I found this pretty helpful. I thought this was somewhat humorous, but also helpful. Listen to these. Which one of these are you prone towards? Because I'm sure there's one of them. I found mine. Uh, Number one, the wrong way to read the Bible, he talks about the warm fuzzies approach. This is reading the Bible for some warm, fuzzy, subjective, mystical experience of God. Whether you understand the words or not right? that's the the warm fuzzies approach number two i think we're a lot of us on this one number two is the grumpy approach um, this is reading the bible from nothing more than some sort of vague grudging sense that you're supposed to so that god will get off your back and you won't feel guilty anymore um, that's the the grumpy approach number three is the gold mine approach this is randomly opening to a passage and searching for some sort of inspirational quote uh to make you feel better i'm just gonna open this and this is god's word uh for me no, no don't do that uh, number four, the hero approach. This is reading the Bible as kind of like some sort of moral hall of fame, right? Here's some hero. I'm going to find his example and I'm going to emulate that. Dare to be a Daniel, right? That's that, that kind of thing. Number five uh, is the rules approach. Reading the Bible for the rules and laws to follow to be a good person, to feel better about yourself and better than others, you know, generally. Uh, number six, this one's kind of weird. He calls this one the Indiana Jones approach, this is reading the Bible as an ancient document about events in a faraway place. Uh, a long time ago, that is largely irrelevant for your life today. It's probably true. There's the magic eight-ball approach, reading the Bible as a road map to tell you where to work or whom to marry or what job to take or etc. cetera. Right? Maybe the Bible's going to tell you that. Number nine is the, the Aesop's fable approach. Reading the Bible is just a loose collection of nice morality tales right? that give you a nice moral lesson. And then number nine is the doctrine approach, which is just reading the Bible to shore up your arsenal for the next kind of... You know, doctrinal debate that you're going to have. Um, all of these are wrong ways to read and approach and use the scriptures. Which one of those are you most prone to? You should have each written down at least one of them. I know which ones mine are. Um, how do you use the scriptures? I think it would be the grumpy, grudging approach for many of us. I think for some of you it would probably be the warm fuzzies approach. Um, you know, you just kind of want some sort of shot in the arm to feel good. Uh, the rule, rules, morals, heroes approach for the legalists among us kind of thing. The point is, there are many wrong ways to read and use the word of God. It's only the gospel approach. It's only the scriptures bear witness about me approach that is the correct approach, the approach that is commended to us here by Christ himself. What we just saw in Luke chapter 24, he walked, God himself is standing before them, the very word of God, and he directs them to the Old Testament scriptures. That's, that's hugely significant. Church. So let me walk you through the word and how it explains me and points to me. That whole Old Testament, he's saying, that thing, that's all about me. Read it appropriately. Right? So don't seek first your pleasure, seek his pleasure. Don't seek your will, but his will. Don't seek self in the scriptures. That's what they were ultimately doing. And that's what's very easy for us to ultimately do. It's easier to do that than you think. Seek the Son in the scriptures. How? Point number three. Let's look quickly how to do it. Uh, Jump quickly to the end of the passage. Verse 45. Jesus has just claimed in verses 22 and 27 that he is the judge. The Father has given all judgment into the hands of the Son. So he can't be saying here in verse 45 that he will not judge them. He will. He's already said that. He's already said that. He, all he's saying in verse 45 is that he will have no need to accuse them because Moses himself, the very one that they claim to look to and, and hope in, will accuse them. Why? Into verse 46. For he wrote of me. It's the same idea as verse 39. Where did Moses write of Jesus? In the Pentateuch, right? Penta 5, tuk, or Tukos is scroll or book. The first five books of the Bible. Genesis through Deuteronomy, Jesus seemed to believe here, authored by Moses. And Jesus claims that Moses, writing, I don't know, 1,400 years-ish before Jesus, he says, hey, Moses, 1,400 years ago, he's, he's writing about me. We saw this back in chapter 1, verse 45. Philip said to Nathanael, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth. The law and the prophets is a sort of shorthand for the whole Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. You know that part that we don't read and that we're scared about? Jesus says, all of that is equally inspired. All of that is about me. This is the Old Testament that Jesus is talking about right now, which is hugely helpful because we so struggle with the Old Testament. We don't know what to do with it, and so we often just set it aside and ignore it. But that's a problem because your Old Testament makes up 77% of your bible. In the perfect sovereignty and wisdom of God, he said, I'm going to give you 77% of the revelation that I believe that you need for the whole of life, and 77% of it is going to be found in these Hebrew scriptures. Listen, you pick up any book and you're going to have a hard time understanding what's going on if you only read the last 23% of that book. Doesn't make sense. But we often avoid it because it's harder. We get the New Testament. We get what it's about, but we struggle to understand what the Old Testament about. Good news. Jesus has just told us what the Old Testament is about. He tells us it's about the same thing that the New Testament is about. It's about Jesus himself. And so we read it rightly when we read it as if it is all about him. As if the whole thing is preparing for and pointing to him. How does it do that? How does the Old Testament prepare us and point us to Jesus? Scotland to the rescue here. Uh, be here on November 14th. Uh, Lord willing, our Scottish missionary Andrew Matheson will be here with us. He's a fantastic preacher with the fantastic accent, so don't don't miss that. Uh, But I'm referencing one of my other favorite Scotsmen in his book, How Sermons Work, David Murray. He's a great preacher to listen to. David Murray. And read his Happy Christian, read his book Reset. He's wonderful. Uh, Murray kills the alliteration in giving us seven ways that the Old Testament points us to Christ. We can't Do them justice here and and walk through all of them. But he lists the prophecies, the pictures, the presence, the providence, the persons, the precepts, the problems. And I think he should have added to that the the promises. That was an easy one. I don't know how he missed the promises. Prophecies, pictures, presence, providence, persons, precepts, problems, promises. I'm not the only one with an alliteration problem. Our understanding of Jesus in the Old Testament so often stops at the prophecies. Micah 5.2. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. All right, good. Look, see, there's a pointer to Jesus. Well, sure, praise God. But there's so much more. Henry taught us Thursday about types, pictures, patterns in the Old Testament that prepare us for Christ. Um, Presence, I've argued before that the angel of the Lord is the Son of God. Covenant, as we saw this morning, is about God with us. All of that is preparing for us uh, for Jesus, Emmanuel. God with us. So God's presence in the Old Testament is always pointing us forward to the the literal personal presence to come in Christ. Providence. God ordains and orchestrates the whole of history. Big details and small to get us to Christ. He is the hinge of history. Christian, if you could believe in the providence of God, your life would be transformed. If you could believe that God was actively ordaining every little detail in your life for your good, your life would be changed, but we so struggle to believe that. Uh, The precepts, God's law, shows us how clearly that we need a Savior and someone to keep that law and fulfill that law for us. The problems, the Old Testament, if we're honest, often it's a bit depressing if if we're honest with ourselves. It just kind of ends and you're like, that's it? Uh, The Old Testament in large part is there to painfully reveal to us our sin and our helplessness. And our hopelessness, it painfully reveals to us the problems that only Jesus can solve. And then there's the promises, the wonderful promises. All of the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Paul's very clear. Hey, that promise that God made uh, to Abraham a couple thousand years before this, that was about Jesus, by the way. All of that about Jesus. And again, we could go on and on and on. This is how you read the Old Testament. This is how you search the scriptures. You search them for the Son. You should be reading and always asking yourself why and and how. Why is this here? If God is perfectly sovereign, he ordained and he gave this word for a specific purpose, what could that be? And then how does this prepare me for and point me to the Son? And when by the grace of God... You begin to read the scriptures in this way, not as this like random 66 disconnected books that you don't really understand, but you start to see the wholeness of it. Here's what we talked about in Sunday school, the importance of having a framework, a covenant framework of the great unity. It's one story about Christ. When you start to see that and search in him for the sun, it's, just like a, it's like a light, what are those things called? Switch. It's like a light switch. flips on. Uh, the text opens up. The text sings because you are now seeing it in light of its very purpose, and point. So what Christ is claiming here is that he is the comprehensive key that unlocks the whole of Scripture. Scripture in its entirety is oriented around him. The whole thing, in every way, is ultimately about him. And he is the pearl of great price. He is uh, the person of infinite and inestimable value. He is of great worth. And we all need to be convinced of that great worth. And we need to be convinced that great worth is worth Great work. Consider this. What would you do right now if I was able to convince you that there was $100 million hidden somewhere in your home? And that was actually true. You'd leave, right? Some of you want to leave anyways. But if there's $100 million <laughs> on the line, you would jump up and you'd go. There is something of inestimable value in your home. And if you knew it was there, you'd look for it. Immediately, And aggressively and obsessively, you would go and you would seek and you would search. What if it was well hidden? What if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was there, but you could not find it at first? You'd keep searching. And you'd keep seeking. You would not stop. You would not rest. There's infinite value there. It's yours. If only you can find it and lay hold of it. In church, we have something of infinitely more value In the scriptures. And yet how we treat those scriptures. And just how apathetic and cold and how we don't care about those scriptures. Jesus says, I'm I'm there. I'm in them. You find me in them. Search them. Uh, Use them. Put forth effort and and time. You have the time. Use it. Because the work will be worth it. Read the word of God. Because it's in it that we find the son of God who is life. Read it as John Newton lays out in one of his letters. He says, with sincerity, with diligence, with humility, and with prayer. Diligence. Read it. Read it or sincerity. Read it with honesty. Willing to be taught by it and submit to it. You're not the boss. Heed the words of Spurgeon. He says, I would recommend that you either believe God up to the hilt or else not believe at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. It's important. It's either it's it's all or nothing. There's a lot of kind of middle gray stuff going around right now. It's like, oh, you know, I like this part and not that part. Um, you know, the gender stuff, eh? You know, the, the sexual stuff, eh? Set that aside. Uh, the relationship between men and women and headship, and eh, I, I don't really like all that. No, it's 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 all or nothing. All right? it's either God's word or it's or it's not. So read it with honesty, willing to submit to it. Read it with diligence. The way to have little faith, Spurgeon argues, oh no, sorry, Newton, this is back to Newton. The way to have little faith, he says, is to exert little effort in the word of God. I think it's pretty good. The way to have little faith is to exert little effort in the word of God. Give yourself to the word with a passion and an energy that befits the infinite value of that word. Read it with humility. Read it as a sinner seeking the one who is salvation. See yourself through the lens of God's perfect law. J.I. Packer, this is great. The index of the soundness of a man's faith in Christ is the genuineness of the self-despair from which it springs. Have you yet experienced true self-despair? No hope within myself. That'll drive you to the Savior. Read the scriptures with self-despair, which leads to Christ-dependence and Christ-delight. And then he says, read, read with prayer. Again, this is our... Only hope. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Pray it every time before I open the scriptures. Every time. Apart from you, I can do nothing. Not even read and benefit from the word. So pray. Read the whole word as if it were holy about Christ. And then put the effort and attention and time into the word as if Christ is of infinite value and only found there. Search the scriptures for the son. And then fourth and finally, this will be short... Uh, believe in the son of the scriptures and live again the jews were not wrong in their belief in verse 39 that is in the scriptures that we find life it is in the scriptures that we find life but that is specifically because it is in the scriptures that we find the son who is life and again we've seen this theme the whole beginning has been all about christ as life and guess what guess what's coming chapter 6 verse 35 i am the bread of life this life thing must be pretty important Jesus has just said in 5.21 that it is the Son who gives life to whom he will. He's just said in verse 24, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Life is on the line. Life is in the scriptures because the scriptures reveal and mediate the Son. The word inscripturated gives us the word incarnated. And so as we began, believe. Believe biblically. Many think they believe because they agree with some truths about Jesus. That's not biblical belief. Biblically, faith affects the whole. If it does not affect the whole, it is not faith. Faith is a whole-souled trust in the Lord. It is believing trust, trustful belief. It is hearing and heeding. It is trusting and obeying. Jesus says that in John 14. If anyone loves me, he will keep my logos, my word. So this belief is often very different from what it is believed to be. Just from our text, look at it. Verse 40, we see that belief is coming to Jesus for life. We see verse 42, that it's having the love of God within you. Verse 43, we see that it's receiving Jesus. Verse 44, we see that it's receiving glory from God, not from man. Verse 47, we see that it's believing the writings of the scriptures. This belief is an entire giving of yourself over to the Lord. I am yours You are mine. My life is yours, for you gave your life for me. I love you because you first loved me. And that's belief. And this belief, this whole-souled trust in the Lord, is the only appropriate response to such convincing and compelling testimony. Jesus has lined up witness after witness and made his case. You have no reason not to believe. Lack of evidence is, is no excuse. There is abundant. Evidence. The only reason that you don't, verse 44, is because of your sin. It's because of your seeking of self and seeking glory from man, not seeking the glory of and from God. And you find that glory in the word of glory. And so church, I cannot say this enough. I'm kind I of, don't, I don't know, what, I'm doing something wrong. I'm trying to figure this out. Uh, it keeps me up at night sometimes. And drives me crazy in my desire to somehow convince you to take and eat, to read, and to rest, and to rejoice, to search the scriptures for the Son and live. I cannot overemphasize how important the word is. We're not just saying like, hey, you know, this thing kind of stinks and it's kind of boring, but you kind of need to do it right? so you'll be a good person. No, we're saying like there's joy and there's life and there's pleasure and there's riches eternal found in those words. And so go to them. I can know your opinion of God by your opinion of God's word. That's just a fact. I can know your opinion of God by your opinion of God's word. I can have a pretty good idea of your relationship with God based upon your relationship with God's word. You just do not really believe in the son of the scriptures if you do not care to search the scriptures for the son. Relationships consist of presence and communication. God is both present in and communicates through his word. Do we really claim to know and love him and yet care nothing for the means in which he is with us and speaks to us. And so let me close a bit differently this week. Like, when I start talking about social media, I think some of you just roll your eyes and tune me out. Here he goes again. Um, Maybe that's the case when I talk about reading the Bible. Um, So I'm going to give you someone else's words, um, and they can get away with saying things more intensely than I can. Listen to J.C. Ryle. This is written over 120 years ago. Go home and Google Ryle, R-Y-L-E, and Bible reading. And spend some time reading this whole thing. It's not that long. I would recommend you reading it. Um, But I'm going to close with this. Ryle writes this 120 years ago. You live in a world where your soul is in constant danger. Enemies around you on every side. Your own heart is deceitful. Bad examples are numerous. Satan is always laboring to lead you astray. Above all, false doctrine and false teachers of every kind abound. This is your great danger. To be safe, you must be well armed. You must provide yourself with the weapons which God has given you for your help. You must store your mind with Holy Scripture. This is to be well armed. Arm yourself with a thorough knowledge of the written Word of God. Read your Bible regularly. Become familiar with your Bible. Neglect your Bible, and nothing that I know of can prevent you from error. Make it a rule to believe nothing except it can be proved from Scripture. The Bible alone is infallible. Do you really use your Bible as and as much as you want? There are many today who believe the Bible yet read it very little. Does your conscience tell you that you are one of these persons? If so, you are a man that is likely to get little help from the Bible in your time of need. If so, you are the man that is unlikely to become established in the truth. I shall not be surprised to hear that you are troubled with doubts and questions about assurance, grace, faith, perseverance, etc. If so, you are the man that is likely to make mistakes in your life. I shall not wonder if I am told that you have problems in your marriage, problems with your children, problems about the conduct of your family and about the company you keep. The world you steer through is full of rocks, shoals, and sandbanks. You are not sufficiently familiar, either with the lighthouse or the maps." All these are uncomfortable situations. I want you to escape them all. Take the advice I offer you today. Do not merely read your Bible a little. Read it a great deal. Remember your many enemies. Be armed. And then I almost pulled this out this morning. because I was like, is this too intense? I don't know. But then Ryle specifically speaks to those of us who have and can read the Bible and yet don't. His words, not mine. I'm going for it. He says, are you one of those? If you are, I have something to say to you. I cannot comfort you in your present state of mind. It would be a mockery and a deceit to do so. I can't speak to you of peace in heaven while you treat the Bible as you do. You are in danger of losing your soul. You are in danger because your neglected Bible is plain evidence that you do not love God. The health of a man's body may generally be known by his appetite. The health of a man's soul may be known by his treatment of the Bible. Now you are manifestly living with a serious disease. Will you not repent? The health of a man's soul may be known by his treatment of the Bible. If he's correct, some of us are in trouble. I just think we've all gotten too comfortable with laughing off like the neglect of Bible reading. Ha, you know, I started in January and I only made it to February 2nd. Ha, that's so funny. What if it's not? Like, what if we've gotten way too comfortable with the excuse that we're too busy or that this is too hard? this a serious church. My goal is is not to condemn. I'm sure that's how it's coming across. Um, Ryle's goal was not to condemn, but it was to warn. What if the word is all that we've seen in this sermon? And so much more than that. I haven't done it near the justice that it deserves. What if the word really is where we find eternal life? And not just the experience of future eternal life, but the experience of present eternal life Now, what if the word is the key to all of our problems and struggles and doubts and fears and anxieties and discontentments and and so on? What if the word really is life and our relationship with the Lord can be judged in large part by relationship to his word? And yet we're totally neglecting it. Church, read. I I beseech you and and I beg you, read as if your life depended upon it. Jesus says that it does. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So read that word in light of its revelation of the God of all grace, who sent his son to die for all of your sins and all of my sins. even, Even this one, even these, even the sins of apathy and neglect of him through neglect of his word. Church, that's a wonderful savior. Again, he doesn't just die for us with all the stuff at the beginning and then afterwards like you know, figure that out. No, he dies for us knowing all the sin that will still come after we know him. That's how good and gracious he is. And it's the revelation of that and the realization of, oh, he knows me through and through and all of my sin. he knows how much I will struggle to, to read and commune with him through his word for so many years. And yet he, he, he sets his love upon me and he rescues me and he saves me. And he's so patient and kind church right he's patient and good and gracious and so the answer is not like oh well game over no look how gracious he is look he forgives even this and so find and seek this savior that is so good and so gracious and kind in the one way that he has said that he can be found which is in his word there's great comfort and peace to be found in these words i have found truth in what ryle just said i don't know how to help you well if you refuse to avail yourself of the means that God has given to you to find life and hope and comfort and peace. Read it. There's hope. There's life. These are the words of eternal life because these are the words of the Christ who is life. So church, we're going to seek to search those scriptures together, seek to do that better personally, to seek to do that better corporately. Pray for us as we seek how to lead you well in that area, to do that ourselves personally and to help you do that as well. Um, but I'm going to talk forever if I don't stop now. Um, so let's, let's close. Um, last, let's ask God to help us. Um, let's, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, help us now. Father, if anything I have said is wrong or incorrect, well, please forgive me first. Help me to know your word well and to teach it correctly and clearly. Father, help us not to minimize how serious it is to neglect you. Father, we would all recognize the wrongness of a relationship in which we refuse to communicate or to be present uh, with the other person. Father, forgive us for how little we consider who you are and what it is to know you and what it is that you have done for us in Christ. And what an infinite, precious treasure you have given to us in your word. Father, convince us of the beauty of those words and the beauty of the Christ that those words reveal and mediate to us. Father, compel us and give us the desire to come to them, to seek and to search for the Son in those scriptures. Father, help Mike and I to better lead us in this area and to better model this and to teach this better. Father, I pray that we would once again be a people of the book. Father, the church is plagued by biblical illiteracy, not here, but, Father, in this whole country. Father, I pray that our desire would, again, not be to to check off some box or to not feel guilty anymore, but it would be because, oh, because you're so good, and and that's where you are, and and we want you, and we want to know you. And so, Father, help us, please. um, Use your word. um, Use it better than I can use it. uh, By your spirit, now do your work in your hearts. Do your work in my heart that I desperately need. Um, Father, draw us all to Jesus. And do that by drawing us to the word of Jesus. Father, help us now, we pray in in his name. Amen.